So you went from uncool to cool. Not inside, of course. <laughs> you know, I loved skin. I loved the concept of kind of making people look and feel better whilst also tackling key issues. And then I left to set up my own practice, which was quite an unusual thing to do at the time. I think people thought I was bonkers. I didn't do things according to the usual paradigm. Live TV, though, is really stressful. (laughs) So stressful. So it was all very, you need to cut your hair or you're off the show, Samantha. I think I might have weeped a little. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think they just had this image of like, you know, a doctor lady with her her curly bob. (laughs) I mean, my parents were told by somebody in the town that what business do they have sending their daughter to Cambridge, having hope around better skin for a lot of people is a terrifying notion and what if their hopes get dashed again and that is the way all the skincare stuff I've gone on to do began really Hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. My guest today is Dr. Sam Bunting, a cosmetic dermatologist, founder of Dr. Sam Bunting and Associates on Harley Street, and her eponymous skincare brand, Dr. Sam's. Her clinic and skincare line is known to be the go-to for those in the know, and her passion for demystifying, simplifying, and making skincare solutions accessible is what led her to become a trusted voice on TV shows, including TLC's Extreme Beauty Disasters, and imprint in beauty columns and features in every major newspaper and magazine title you can think of. She was born in County Down, Belfast, and studied at Cambridge University and University College London before becoming a member of the Royal College of Physicians in 2002. She practiced medical dermatology for nine years before establishing her own private practice on Harley Street. She says that the aim and her speciality is bridging the gap between medical dermatology and beauty. It's obviously something she's doing very well because she has over 200,000 subscribers to her YouTube channel and nearly 150,000 followers on Instagram where she shares skincare advice and product recommendations. While skin issues may present as an external, dare I say, superficial problem, what Sam brings to the conversation is her emotional intelligence, keenly aware that what might be appearing on the skin can be affecting the mind, body and spirit too. It's why I'm so excited to have this conversation with Sam today. Dr. Sam Bunting, it is such a pleasure to welcome you back onto The Emma Gunn Show. Delighted to be here. Wow, what an intro. (laughs) This is your return. (laughs) Yes, I've been waiting for the invitation impatiently. Patiently Mm. waiting in the wings, WhatsApping me. (laughs) Um, I do think that is the thing that you bring, which is so unique and you have a real brand of it, of having that emotional intelligence of skin problems, yes, it's a how you look issue, but it's so much more than that. You really understand that it's a how you feel problem too. You really suffered with acne, didn't you? God, it was a nightmare, honestly. I mean, I can remember putting concealer on, you know, getting up to go down to see patients on call in the middle of the night. So I really kind of know the journey of that person who struggled with how they're perceived all the time, you know, in work and their personal life. And I think that really fueled my personal interest in helping people with breakout prone skin achieve a more accessible solution. But it also comes from a love of beauty. I mean, I was obsessed with, 
you know, making things look better and taking dermatology further than at the time was currently being practiced with sort of more of the New York Derm model, which basically looked at both the sort of medical and the cosmetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more holistic, isn't it? Yeah, They're I think sort of... so. It's what people want. They they get better in their skin problem and then they want to see how much better they can look. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's about confidence and the way you look being inextricably intertwined. Mm. So your journey has been really interesting and it's a journey I don't understand because I don't understand how medicine works. <laughs> I don't understand what you have to do. I just always say that the my friends in beauty who uh, do what you do, I just know that they've spent a long time in school. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because it is, it's a real, it's, it takes a lot of work to be able to do what you're doing now, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, six years at medical school, three years at Cambridge, three years at UCL, then training, and you go through those tough years where you do a bit of everything. Then you decide if you're going to be a physician or a surgeon or a psychiatrist or a GP. So I went down the physician's routes. And, you know, I loved skin. I'd spent a year in Australia and I was a junior doctor and I loved the concept of kind of making people look and feel better whilst also tackling key issues. And, you know, fell into dermatology, really loved it, but also saw that it might be a bit limited staying in the hospital setting. So I practiced as a, in my training program for six years and as a locum consultant for three years. And then I left to set up my own practice, which was quite an unusual thing to do at the time. I think people thought I was bonkers. Mm. I didn't do things according to the usual paradigm. Well, I my intro question with my guests is normally, what's your relationship like with risk? And talk to me about the biggest risk you've ever taken. And that was your big risk because that was a, an untrodden path, wasn't it, to make that change when you made it? Yeah, very early. And, you know, it, colleagues were a little bit, you know, what are you doing? Or, you know, you work really hard to get into a dermatology training program. But I just kind of knew that I wanted to have a role in education I wanted to be able to say what I thought about, you know, straightforward stuff like skincare, you know, to have an opinion on that. And Mm. you're a bit restricted when you work in a hospital setting. So I made the move, left, started doing a bit of brand work at the same time and really got to love doing that. Really love being immersed in the beauty industry. Um, Made friends with a few journalists along the way and then became, you know, somebody they found accessible and nice to go and see about their personal problems. Um, So built relationships at the same time, loved doing the beauty work um, and then ended up doing a bit of TV. So all of a sudden taking the sort of less trodden path opened up tremendous opportunities that just otherwise wouldn't ever have appeared. And even though it kept leading to things that scared the life out of me, I kept going and kept finding new challenges, rising to them despite, you know, a degree of anxiety and mm. um, and loving it anyway. So, you know, life just kept getting more and more interesting. Um, so I'm, I'm very lucky. I took a, a turn. It was a bit, you know, kind of scary at the time, but um, I haven't looked back with any regret mm. for a second. So... It's interesting you talk about regret because I think someone asked uh, a while ago on the podcast, like, what sits on the other side of risk? And I don't necessarily know what sits on the other side of risk, but I know that what sits on the side of not taking the risk is almost certainly going to be a regret of some sort. I mean, it's interesting. I don't have many regrets in my life. Um I, I just don't tend to look back on events that way. I and I think that's really quite helpful to me. I don't I don't sort of pour endlessly over things that I haven't done, probably because in the main the things that really appeal to me on a very kind of deep level. Mm-hmm. 
even when I haven't felt that I've necessarily got the skills to do so, I've gone for it and decided that, you know, despite my own perhaps tendency to underestimate myself a bit, which is a bit of a theme in terms of what goes on inside my head, um, I've generally done the things and worked it out as I've gone along. And that's mm. definitely led to a growth in self-confidence. You know, I was quite a shy person going to Cambridge from Northern Ireland. Even that was a bit of a risk. Um, I mean, my parents, who neither of whom went to university, but are just, you know, bloody amazing individuals, were told by somebody in the town that, you know, what, what business do they have sending their daughter to Cambridge? You know, what would they know about such a thing and how would they help me? Really? Mm, yeah. You know, the pharmacist, well, his son going to Cambridge made sense. That's, you know, you know, I, small town's opinion sometimes kind of, but, you know, my parents said, you know, that, that doesn't matter. That's, you know, Sam's earned the opportunity and she'll get it. Um, and my mum was really passionate about that. Her sister had gone to university and perhaps hadn't had the support to get into Oxbridge. She was told she was bright enough to go to go there. And my mum wanted to make sure that no matter what, my brother and I would have whatever opportunities mm. we could create for ourselves. So we went and didn't have a huge amount of money, but they they found a way. My mum contributed a lot of her... Uh, her inheritance money to, to ensure I got to Cambridge and you know she's very proud but I wouldn't have been there without her sort of strength of her mm. belief in me so what did it mean to you to because I'm sure a lot of people listening have an idea about what Cambridge is like but has, it might not have ever been on the table I definitely have I can remember being 17 and being in the sixth form and like the girls who were doing the Cambridge entry or the Oxbridge exams and just thinking wow that's terribly exciting and you knew that on the other side of that there was this incredible campus and all these wonderful people went there and it was these really historic buildings but what was the reality of going to Cambridge like? I mean very daunting I mean even going for the interviews I remember not feeling terribly well equipped I mean you know I, I was lucky in that I was I was always very competitive so even in situations where I wasn't perhaps as well trained I don't know there are schools now where you you know you're literally trained for yeah. Oxbridge application from quite a young age um that definitely isn't the culture in Northern Ireland um I still I, I've always liked doing the very best that's possible I mean it's elitism I don't know what it is know where it comes from but I've been like that since I was, I was very little and I suppose my cousin had gone to Cambridge he was very bright but he was he was musical he wasn't you know it was he was very academic mm. um for me, being good at sport, I think part of it at the back of my mind was this will help me later on in life. But also, you know, I like doing well at sport. I was wanted to make my coach proud, wanted to make my dad proud. He was really into sport. And, you know, those things I think to some extent I did for other people, but I also did them because I, I knew that they would stand me in good stead mm -hmm. at a later point in time. And I think it was that combination of being academic, you know, I was good at science, um, and then being really driven, which I think is kind of a core quality that has stood me in good stead mm -hmm. all the way through the various sort of um episodes of life recently um that was there and that that is what drove me I think to get to get into Cambridge in Cambridge it was tough I mean my goodness medicine was hardcore you know there was nine to five lectures What's every day medicine, medicine. oh medicine so these are medicine <laughs> like, she sounds like an American upstart why is she giving you a hard time okay medicine right <laughs> This is why I didn't get into Cambridge and you did. <laughs> <Stop it. laughs> My enunciation clearly failing me today. Um, 
So, you know, medicine at Cambridge is hardcore. So you do, you know, nine to five every day. And then you had evening tutorials. We had to write essays and like an idiot, I'd chosen to row in my first term. Again, this this sporty competitive thing. So I was up at every like every other morning at like 5 a.m. to be on the river, mm. you know, freeze to death and then get back in time for lectures. Wow. And then I think it was like there was actually lectures on a Saturday as well at some point. So, yeah, no, they cram a lot into eight week terms and then you're supposed to be really social and outgoing at the same time. So <laughs> everyone was quite depressed by week five. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> fab. Fifth week blues were a thing. But um, but yeah, it, it is, it was a privilege. And um, you meet, as you say, fascinating people, make great connections. Um, yeah. And it's an amazing city to study in. So, so in how do you view that? Do you see that as a risk to going to Cambridge or more of an opportunity? Um. No, I mean, that was definitely an opportunity. No, I didn't think there was any risk involved with that at all. Um, but it wasn't the easiest of environments to navigate coming from, uh, you know, Northern Ireland. Um, I think being so busy, I was really shy, like mm. quite painfully shy, I would say, in those days. Um which you might find hard to believe. <laughs> no, I, I understand it because we know we we do know each other, but I also know that shyness, I think as you get older, transforms into the emotional intelligence that I mentioned right at the top of the show or a vulnerability um, because perhaps you've been more of an observer and you're more keenly aware of your own feelings and perhaps of others, which I think is probably what your shyness is. Perhaps Was, was it overstimulating perhaps? Um, no, I think it was a bit of not being good enough at the beginning. I didn't feel smart enough. Like I, I had a um, a tutorial partner who was uber gifted. I think she'd applied for the first time when she was 15. And, um, you know, I hadn't done biology. So I'd done maths and advanced maths, which is really not very useful whenever you're uh, <laughs> doing medicine um, and chemistry and physics. So I actually had an awful lot to learn. Mm. And such was the average intellect that they didn't really bother with the basics too much. Right. The lectures were all very much more the areas of interest of the lecturers. So you actually had an awful lot to do yourself if you didn't have that basic biological background. So um, yeah, the pace of it was like nothing else. And it's not like history or English where you could be incredibly gifted. There was a sheer volume factory you had to work your way through anyway I mean it's not to complain I obviously did all right mm. in the end but um it was a very very steep learning curve at the time when you're also trying to be all these other things sporty sociable mm. you know meet a boyfriend whatever it was so the, it was just that thing of ha having really high expectations of yourself mm. and then being around other people for the first time who were potentially way brighter than you you know that was an unusual situation to be That's placed in intimidating it's a lot. It yeah. sounds intense. But bringing it back to risk, because no, <laughs> I'm curious about this person who went into Cambridge, where it was a really steep learning curve, and it was perhaps a big shift from what you had known. Adapting to that environment, then coming out of it, doing nearly 10 years, and then making a decision that perhaps just seemed like a, a bit mad, but like, why are you doing this? But there is this part, you've sort of alluded to it, this idea of this confidence of this gut feeling that steers you as well as your intelligence and as well as things like your education. So was it a gut instinct that made you pursue that risk? To So you left, left medicine, not left medicine. To, what is that change that you made? So 
the majority of people, when they specialize, they stay in the hospital system. That's often the source of their referrals when they mm-hmm. set up private practice eventually. So there's, you know, there's a natural thing is to do one or two years where you focus solely on NHS practice as a consultant dermatologist, and then you might think about starting to see patients privately. It wasn't that I wanted to be in private practice per se. I think I just saw that the model didn't suit me. I didn't want to be a doctor mm-hmm. sitting in hospital. Um, and that's not because I didn't want to, you know, sort people out and tend to disease. It was just, it wasn't quality. and It didn't, to me, deliver. It was it was about seeing lots and lots and lots of patients. You know, I would, my locum consultant job at the Whittington, I would see 28 patients in a morning, you know, um, which is just, it's just a, a really... Kind What's of that hard... seven minutes. I mean, I don't know. I, I hope most of the time I didn't have to do more than write a prescription, just because it was it was you know really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, to deliver a quality service where you and the patient really get something out of it does take time to do mm-hmm. it really well, especially with skin, especially with acne-prone skin, which you know I was kind of fascinated with because of my own personal experience mm-hmm. and, and, and thought that I I could bring a lot more to the table. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it was it was a, a decision based on what I didn't want to do more than what I necessarily did. But the irony is that that sort of turn in the path has led me to sort of my dream career. And mm-hmm. I really, I couldn't have designed it any better. It's kind of what I wanted to do when I was, you know, flicking through the pages of Vogue when I was <laughs> younger. I know that sounds a bit sort of superficial or naive, but at the end of the day, I've kind of ended up in exactly that position. So mm. the subconscious at work has been quite, powerful. <laughs> mm. Well, it, it seems like it. Did you have a mentor or did you have anyone who, who Not really, could no. sort of say, yeah, <laughs> the right thing with it? Yeah. No, I think I just, I think I, I was lucky to make a few good connections right at the beginning. And, you know, I worked for other, a couple of other people before I set up my own practice. Mm-hmm. And I think I quickly worked out what I didn't like, what other people did about the way they they conducted their business. And then, you know, it's quite easy to start. You start small. Um, but I found that taking time and actually really listening to people and gathering lots of information and really making them feel listened to and heard was actually the secret to mm. getting someone to feel like the appointment was a valuable use of their time. And then by really going into the bespoke detail of exactly what they needed to do with their skin, right mm. down to the cleanser they should use or which moisturizers would suit them best and how to make sunscreen work with all of that. So mm. doing all those little detailed things, people seem to really like that. And that is the way all the skincare stuff I've gone on to do began really, um, by developing that way of practicing, which meant taking more time and and being, you know, here you go, this is the whole plan. There's no mm. bits missing, you know, right down to supplement advice, which makeup brands to use. That was something nobody else was doing and it's clearly what people wanted in the way that, you know, if you see a really good nutritionist, you have a complete plan. There's yeah. no guesswork. Um, so that's what had kind of worked for me when it came to getting control of my own skin. And, you know, there seemed to be an appetite for it. It was a new way of practicing. Um, it's a bit of a luxury, I suppose. But, you know, at the end of the day, your skin, I think, has the biggest power of anything about your appearance to make you feel good. Mm. Um I mean, hair too, of course, but I think skin, skin is so powerful. When your skin looks great, you know, you feel on top of the world. So, Well, I, like you, had really bad acne as a teenager. Mine had cleared up by the time I hit uni-ish. But I remember a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago now, I had a, a, I was changing medicines 
and I had the old acne appeared again. And it was so bizarre having had over 10 years, I guess, mm. maybe even 15 years of my skin being okay after really bad skin in my teens to then navigate my life with acne because I would do this. And for mm. people who can't see, I would like bring my shoulders up and try and cover my face with my hair. Yep. And you realize that's what I mean about the emotional intelligence. It isn't just about, oh, you've got cystic acne, so try this particular topical cream and maybe try this. It's like, okay, how do we actually get to you? Because there are quite a lot of defenses up. And I think that's what you're really good at doing. And you mentioned there about listening to what people wanted and giving them the space to be heard. I wonder whether that's something you do to other people because actually it's something you appreciate in people people doing for you. Yes. I mean, I think that's probably right. Um, I think it also, you know, when it comes to things that make you feel vulnerable, like you touched on earlier, mm -hmm. it can take time to win rapport with someone. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing worse than feeling you know, vulnerable, maybe having to take your makeup off in front of a stranger yeah, for the yeah. first time and feeling like you've got a 10 minute window to get all that done and have somebody reach a conclusion. And, you know, I've been there where I've had to rush people through and it, it just doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And even if you've given them the right solution, they can walk away just feeling like that hasn't mm -hmm. gone well. So, you know, there's maybe a bit of me that's the people pleaser that wants <laughs> to literally make other people happy. It is a great feeling when you know you've made a difference, and then you see them again in three months. And even though you've maybe not prescribed anything that's that different to what they've had before, how you've delivered it, mm. made it actionable mm -hmm. and made them stick with it. And that is the thing. What happens in those sort of, you know, 11 weeks between the two appointments? Can you, have you, have you convinced that person enough to do what is quite scary? Because yeah. having hope around better skin for a lot of people is a terrifying notion and what if their hopes get dashed again so I feel like that's the work that the psychological work is almost more important than you know what I see like oftentimes the skin between two or three people you know much the same issue and the solutions are much the same but you know what do they need to hear mm. for a different action to happen this time as a result of the appointment so that that's I guess the, the coaching part of it. Mm. You are hugely successful and you are a big name on the beauty scene. And I love the fact that you're bristling as if you're uncomfortable, but you've earned that and I will not hear you say otherwise. And so I was curious about the excuses that you make for yourself or for <laughs> others. And I think excuses are the things we put between us and what we want sometimes to sort of give ourselves a bit of a comfort buffer. And I was really surprised that you... Uh, talked about the fact that you have a voice inside that tells you you're not good enough well sometimes it's not that explicit it's just that harsh self-criticism um you know it's hard to know where that comes from I suppose it's all you know fear-based stuff um my relationship with success and what that means and what that does for others around me there's something in that as well I've probably learned that being successful makes other people happy and gives them a good feeling mm -hmm. sometimes um so I suppose the, the fear of disappointing people by not delivering you know I thankfully haven't had many instances like that you know my driving test being probably the main case in point for what failure oh I just haven't got one <laughs> how many times have you taken your test uh three that's okay I mean I've not tried for quite some time <laughs> <laughs> do you need to drive Sam would you I mean, like to drive I think for freedom when I travel, yes. Like, mm. yeah, that would be quite good. I maybe to go to the countryside and just escape London. You know, it's that thing of escaping city dwelling. But um, yeah. So I think a little bit of it comes from 
you know, letting people down maybe. That that sort of is mixed up in there as well. But um, yeah, I think underestimating myself hasn't necessarily impacted what I do. So, you know, I I I think I feel the anxiety and the worry about the fallout and not not doing things right, mm. but I still tend to go ahead with things. So yeah. which, you know, has its I think over the years helped lessen that feeling a bit. Mm. But when you have a bad day or something doesn't go to plan or you get overly emotional about something, there's often a root cause in there that's based around something simple like that and maybe there's a bit about looks as well I think the industry I work in I probably haven't ended up in that by accident and then there's that thing that women can sometimes do where they compare themselves relentlessly to others so there's a bit of that in there as well probably and I think I mean I don't I don't know why but maybe just being in the media kind of can again exacerbate that Mm -hmm. feeling sometimes so yeah that's a bit wishy-washy maybe but you know there's a thread I I can really relate to it because Uh, I think that I will probably probably should admit this but I will probably enter a lot of situations and even though the person that people see walking into a room is a 45 year old woman who's got 20 years experience in this industry has been doing this for however many years but I still feel like I'm walking into school in my school uniform as a 15-year-old <laughs> who is starting from scratch. And I think I have to work on that because that's the energy I bring. And if I want, and I don't want to bring that energy, I want to bring the energy of, oh, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> because I do in a lot of cases. But I think that's how it shows up for me sometimes is that I will, that I have a very similar thing of like, you're not good enough. But it it shows up as, almost as if the the experience that you has is worth nothing so your brain is going my brain is going to tell me that you're back in your school uniform and you're trying to play with the big girls and you're not ready yet yes that sounds very yeah familiar and I've definitely seen you walk into rooms and do not exude anything of the (laughs) gauche 15 year old but um yeah, I don't know why it's so easy to diminish what you've done and what you've achieved. And if you probably wrote it out on a piece of paper and used that different part of your brain to process the information, it's quite clear the evidence is against the mm, voice. Yeah. And yet the voice can often win. <laughs> well, when you you said that the way that the voice wins is that it will put a distance between you and the thing that you have to act on. And so maybe it, that voice makes you bury your head in the sand. A little bit, would you say? Can definitely be massively avoidant. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I don't tend to let myself down when it really counts, but I can definitely, you know, avoid and procrastinate, you know, sort of an Olympic standard sometimes. (laughs) 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 When I don't have a critical deadline to adhere to, but... um, you know, that's a good example of beating myself up about something that's innately human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can get a bit meta about it. But um, I think, you know, we did the meditation course together last year. It's definitely helped. I now have much better tools to interrupt the loop. A cold shower is great. Mm-hmm. Um, sex is great. <laughs> you know meditation is obviously something a bit more accessible to have in your toolkit (laughs) um for for anyone who's not sure um so actually last year at the beginning of last year I did a meditation course I did it with Gillian Lavender at the London School of Meditation and I mentioned in passing 
I think it was like halfway through December, like, yeah. oh, I'm doing this meditation throwaway course. Comments. It was such a throwaway comment. And then the next thing I know, Sam's like, oh, I'm on that course with you. stalking you. you. Yes. Um, well, it was very close to where I lived. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was around the corner. But we, but it was actually very nice because I think that's where we really understood that we were both, we both were exploring meditation in order to help with issues we both have that are that there's symmetry in and that that low self-esteem is probably one of them and the other one is coping with life in real time in a way that is not knee-jerk because I really needed meditation because if I have a knee-jerk reaction then I am a jerk it's as simple as that so if I respond to an email immediately I, I will be jerky because I, I my, my brain hasn't processed it and I'm I'm being a jerk and so meditation has been really helpful. And so clearly, when you say it interrupts the loop, how has it benefited you? So I think the first thing is when I can feel that I'm getting, um, you know, th towards my threshold of tolerance where I might become snappy. And, you know, when you have a team, two teams now with the clinic and the brand, and, you know, one side doesn't see what the other you know what you're. You know, you, mm -hmm. no one else, no one really knows exactly what you're you're dealing with on both sides at any given time, and it just takes someone to come and ask for a simple request at a time whenever you fill up from the other side of things. So it's it's about learning to go and empty the frustration tank <laughs> or mm -hmm. or the pent up tank, depending on the flavor of the day. Um, <laughs> And sometimes that means literally locking myself in the loo and just taking 15 minutes to meditate. Um, mm. Sometimes there's nowhere else to do it, but you know what, make it work wherever you, you know, back of taxis, I've learned how to meditate quite well. Now, I don't know about you, but I, you know, have to tell the taxi driver, would you mind not having your, your phone call or whatever? But um, yeah, I, I will take whatever time I can, particularly for that second one in the day. The first one's usually mm. fine. It's the second one that can yeah, sometimes be one. the challenge, but um. But yeah, I really do feel reset whenever um, I've done that, especially you're a little bit tired and later in the day, sometimes it's actually easier to mm. kind of empty the tank, so to speak. Um, and I'll do it before difficult conversations as well. I think that helps me be less reactive. I'm definitely someone who brings a lot of emotion to everything I do and that has its upside, but it definitely has its downside. Have you been criticized for that in the past? I'm asking this because I have. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I think so. I think people can think I'm quite hard to bring things up with and talk about um, problems with. Um, and I'm probably not great when there's a critical element. So I can definitely be defensive and reactive to that. I mean, of course, that's, again, human nature. Mm. But in a way that stops me getting the best out of a conversation, like I, I take that quite personally if I haven't been able to listen properly and get mm. all the information and therefore make decisions based on all the information if you if you shut someone down because you go into chimp mode and that activates their chimp mode well no one's really getting all the information mm. and therefore you know as a, a business owner you want to make the best decisions with all the information and you want to treat other people with kindness and respect you know I think that's so important you know I made I made a decision with the brand I wanted to work with people that I liked that got on with that I enjoyed going for a glass of wine with after work it's really important to me that we hire nice people as a sort of no asshole policy um and and it's really worked so far you know but the, then you build emotional relationships and that that can cause trouble as well you know mm. post-pandemic and perhaps people reevaluating decisions about traveling into work and making decisions to go and work in jobs where they could be remote things like that you end up taking quite personally because mm. you've you've built those bonds as well. So 
you know, this is the roller coaster ride of a small business owner, you know, but mostly it's good. And even with the difficult stuff, as long as you reflect on it and you find the learnings in it, you grow a bit and mm. hopefully you do a better job next time. Well, you also have that wonderful disease I also have, which is overthinking and catastrophizing. So <laughs> yes. this is why I think we both oh, want to do meditation Cassandra. as well. It's my uh, alter ego's name. Wait, what? <laughs> Cassandra? <laughs> well, she always cited, that, you know, I think she's a Greek goddess that cited, you know, disaster and um, doom and the worst was going to happen. And <laughs> of course, we're all going to die eventually. But, you know, yeah, my inner Cassandra can definitely come out on steroids sometimes interesting how do you pull that back I mean it's kind of the same right I mean you know in some ways exploring all potential negative outcomes and trying to plan for them you know it's kind of a stoic philosophy almost if you plan for worst possible disasters then you have a good contingency plan mm -hmm. for just about everything but the problem is when you keep in, in a loop and you can't just go okay well I've got all the facts now and I've made mm -hmm. the plan and we need to move forward anyway it just sometimes stops you from moving forward perhaps as speedily as you mm -hmm. might want to and I think you know we work in a very fast-paced e-commerce world you can't afford to dilly-dally with those kind of critical decisions no. so um and sometimes when I'm out of my comfort zone I'll overthink even more and I'm out of my comfort zone on a daily basis so yeah, I guess what I've chosen to do is a bit masochistic, given my personality, but hey-ho, um, it does make you more careful. There is an upside to it, mm -hmm. I think. It's just a personal cost sometimes. You talked a, a little while ago about you've got the brand team and you've got the clinic team, so you sit in the centre. How good do you have to be at delegating? Because if you're taking on the emotional burden of both teams at the same time, that feels as though it could be a lot. And actually, one of the ways in which one could relieve that pressure would be to delegate and trust, which I think, and I know this personally, is the hardest thing to do when you are wound up to be uh, anxious, a control freak, self-esteem issues, that it feels very uncomfortable to trust other people and delegate. Um, but clearly, that is something that is necessary for you to do? Is that a, something that's been tricky to learn? Yes. And I think, you know, we're, we're what, 12 now on the brand side of things. So the team is growing and, you know, I've had to um, make a decision to hire some sort of more senior people. So um, yeah, there's very much the sort of concept of having a loose grip um, is something I'm trying to practice more, mm -hmm. but it's work. And um, I got a really good piece of advice, though, when it comes to these things from um, a friend who's um, been many things, but a business coach was one of her, her many roles. But, um, you know, it's about being a bit vulnerable and actually telling people, look, you know, a bad day with me looks like this, almost like giving people the information ahead of time mm -hmm. to, I suppose, like it's like a blueprint for how best to get the best out of you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if both parties can do that whenever you know, you're, I mean, our, our sort of work structure at the brand is very flat in terms of hierarchy. We, you know, it's very level. Um, so everybody knows how to get the best out of each other and where the, the red zones might lie. Um, it's better for everyone really, but you know, that is a work in progress. What's your red zone? <laughs> red zones. Red zones. Um, I struggle with people who don't put their all in, you know, I, I think I'm somebody that tends to commit 110% and mm -hmm. 
I can struggle if it seems like somebody else isn't, that I have the expectation that they will. Um, Again, that's something, again, I'm having to become more mature about. It's my business. Mm. (laughs) I can't expect everybody to have exactly the same enthusiasm for it. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's all tied up with emotion again. And I suppose I find everything we do to do with the brand hugely exciting and very Mm. motivating and you know really really puts a fire in my belly um in a way that probably nothing else in my career has um even on the sort of the more mundane days where it's you know the work maybe isn't as exciting as it is on others I I still feel really a sense of strong sense of purpose and like this is the right thing for me to be doing with my life Mm. I don't know lots of people don't get that and I feel very very privileged um so I think when you have that much strength of belief in what you do you can't quite understand people maybe not having the same emotion around it but I it wasn't my own business but when I worked on magazines I felt so lucky to get that dream job I felt like it was sort of like I don't know there was a lucky star or it was a full moon or something it it didn't feel earned I felt like I'd been I don't know it was a fairy tale in a way because it was a dream job and I had a terrible attitude during my time there which I deeply regret and have worked on since because I thought that in order to show how much I valued that opportunity, I took it very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. I was an emotional stakeholder. I didn't make good money. I didn't make any more money for however many more magazines sold or anything like that. So it was just, but I was an emotional stakeholder. And if I saw somebody, what I saw to be having fun with it or being a bit cavalier with, with their role or bunking off, I would be livid <laughs> because I was holding because I, I it's a really strong sense of fairness, isn't it? And, yeah. and I think fairness is something that I it's quite interesting. I, I learned on another podcast recently that fairness is actually a chimp quality. It's not a human quality. You've just read this chimp book. What's the chimp book? No, I haven't read it yet, <laughs> but I th- that took my breath away because I would say that a lot of the times where I've had conflict, it's been because fairness has been at the core of it. And actually, I don't know to know that that's something that being human and being, you know, more sanguine mm. about life and events um, might make it easier for a start. But um, I don't know. I find that interesting. <laughs> so why did it take your breath away? <laughs> what? The chimp thing, the fairness thing. Um, but do you not looked I at think, it like that no, before? No, because I, th- I think of fairness as being like a very rational and, you know, it's quite nuanced, but at the end of the day, it's about values and principles mm-hmm. um, as opposed to something that's we're born with this fist thumping that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, does that seem odd to you? No, not in the slightest. It's just I wondered why, why it was a revelatory moment when you heard because it. I can hang on to things for a long time mm. based on things seeming unfair um and uh. I think I'm right because of that and actually at the end of the day if a relationship is affected by being right as opposed to being you know can what's the word um working collaboratively to a mm. better outcome for both of you which is a much more human thing to do when you compare the two but I think yeah fairness to me seemed like it was a human and rational thing to do as opposed to yeah you've just described why social media is so wrong and all interactions <laughs> on social media are so wrong because there is no nuance there's no collaborative it's just this is my opinion people are so entrenched yes and I think actually when you do feel as though you have right on your side yes and fairness I think makes you think that you're being responsible and 
honest and honorable you can feel as though you're justified because you're right you're, yes. you're on the right side of history but actually you might be being a bit of a dick <laughs> <laughs> and making yourself and the other person unhappy you know this I'd say this definitely has happened in relationships mm-hmm. um yeah no, I'm no judgment. I'm right, I'm, <laughs> I am right there with you, sister. And I do think you talked about being quite prone to, prone to anxiety, but enjoying risk. And I have to say, I mm. occupy the same sort of brain space in that mm-hmm. I am fundamentally risk averse and a bit of a scaredy cat, but I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I could be I, like, I couldn't do a bungee jump, for example. But no. I think when I look at my career for example there are things that if you took my nature at face value it shouldn't have gone the way that it did (laughs) somewhere along the way Mm -hmm. there's this more um there's a braver version of me that takes over and takes the leap when it doesn't make good sense to and I think you're probably to your scaredy cat self it doesn't make good sense it doesn't make good sense Mm. at all Mm. I would tell somebody else to do it (laughs) but I wouldn't do it because I'd be like no harm will come from it but I would talk myself out of it I'm Mm. very very good at talking myself out of things for fear of what might happen and yet you haven't though in the majority of the instances that really counted by the sound of things not the majority maybe but enough for enough for me to have the data to prove that I shouldn't be as scared as I uh, instinctively am, perhaps. Okay. No, I I mean, I can definitely relate to that a lot. Um, I think for me, it feels a bit like there's a chip that gets activated when things are exciting enough Mm. and the, you know, how crazy can things get, gets, Mm. you know, kind of starts to buzz around. And And then I think my dopamine systems kick in and then I get really, yes, close my eyes, you know, hope for the best. And then, you know smart intelligent people we tend to work things out so Mm. I would say TV was definitely an example of that like for an inherently quite shy person doesn't like public speaking to end up doing a TV show is quite quite brave I think you know (laughs) was was it a case of someone said would you like to do it was it a case of this is a yes or no question um I mean I hadn't put myself I wasn't looking for anything no so it happened I think after a couple of bits of press I think I've been in the Daily Mail or something with a big picture you made it and um, (laughs) making controversial comments around a a well-known moisturizer Um, (laughs) I won't be more specific than that Uh, Um, that annual feature (laughs) right um and yeah and then you know that was fine went up for the interviews and I think got it it was quite a traumatic period around needing to have my hair chopped <laughs> right so it was all very you need to cut your hair or you're off the show Samantha and I was frog marched to the hairdressers to cut my hair and I think I might have weeped a little oh my gosh <laughs> well, it was like America's Next Top it, Model it was exactly it was shades of that literally the director of the show get over it Samantha I, I pushed back said I don't think I want to do that I'm a grown-up woman you know I'm not some 22 year old yeah. that you're molding to be next holly willoughby or something but um no they came back saying no it's a deal breaker for the (laughs) were there just too many long-haired people on the show no i think they just had this image of like you know a doctor lady with her her curly bob and uh (laughs) anyway um so i I caved and Mm. i went and had my 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 bob made um I think I look really crap for the first series. 
And they were really careful to keep me away from like the playback so that I didn't get too self-conscious, they said on camera. But I think mm. secretly they also knew that maybe they'd made a mistake with the hair. Right. But um, anyway, the point was I learned how to talk to a camera and, you know, to the point where I was able to do live telly with a hangover with two hours notice on Boxing, e <laughs> Boxing Day Eve one, one year. My parents had just gone Boxing home. Boxing Day Eve is Christmas Day. Boxing Day Eve. Is it like the evening of? I imagine oh, I say the Eve. Like, like the Eve. I don't know. Um, yeah, my parents had left to just go back to Ireland at like three o'clock and we'd all had, you know, a very fun night the night before. And the phone call came in at about four o'clock. Can you come on Channel 4 News? I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. Oh, today? Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in Ugg boots and had a green complexion from, you know, lack of skincare, I think. And um, somehow rallied and got myself together and then went on and did the live segment. And my parents were just literally arriving home, <laughs> like going, we got a message to say you were on Channel 4 News. And I was like, yes, yes, that's, I've been quite busy since you left. Um it's, that was quite funny. Live TV, though, is really stressful. <laughs> so stressful. But you oh. and actually, nothing makes live TV more stressful than being hungover. Yeah, but then you know, you, if you can do that, and then you come off it, and you get that little weird high that you get when you've done something mm. that scares the life out of you, but you haven't died. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, okay, what's next? <laughs> is that you ramping up something that's already stressful to extra stress so that you can kind of almost like wear it as a medal? Like if you can do it under those circumstances, then you can do it anytime. I think it's the same nervous system activation with a different name, right? I mean, fear mm. and excitement are the same thing. It's just how you brand it in your head. So I think there's that thing where if you've done something often enough, so if you, you know, eventually if you do public speaking often enough or speak to a camera often enough mm. you stop being anxious about it so finally when you're in situ and you're doing the thing it then becomes a bit more automatic and then you get a high out of it and then I think that sort of mm. encourages you to volunteer the next time it's making me think about my time in front of the camera oh. on live tv and just thinking that actually I didn't do that but what I would do is I would just fuel up on coffee and not eat so you're getting the high externally so then, in a way. <laughs> so it's putting more pressure on a situation that I know is already, like, I don't know about you, but the first time I did live television, I could not hear because <laughs> my heart, my pulse in my ears was so loud. Like I even got it, um, I even get it if I'm nervous, like if I'm waiting at the doctors or something, like I will just really? get the, yeah, yeah, almost like deafens me. And I know that the coffee, they're not eating. Make it worse. They're not sleeping. We'll, we'll absolutely <laughs> won't help with that. The best thing to do would be to have like a protein rich breakfast. There you beforehand. go. <laughs> <laughs> like to, I don't know, take some, I don't know, some ashwagandha or some adaptogens or something uh, and go into that in the best possible state. But actually, you just made me realize that the state I chose to do a really stressful thing really was activated. a state of stress. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Um, but I think it is just bringing on the sensation and then redefining it. And then it's a bit exhilarating, right? I mm. mean, I think my first time of live TV was on this morning. And actually, I was on with two other... Um, For anyone who's not aware, this morning is the most watched primetime daily <laughs> TV magazine show. Uh, yeah, good to so, your feet wet, yeah. doing something really low risk. Um, yeah. And I was on with two other contributors and we were talking about the fact that one of the contributors had lots of work done and she looked amazing and 
the other one was avidly against having work done generally mm -hmm. and i was there then to provide the kind of the balanced medical view on this it wasn't it wasn't a patient of mine but they both got going to such an extent that i sat there thinking i am not going to say a word this is going to be my first time on live television and i look quite nice but i was in risk of actually saying nothing so eventually then i think it was philip then said to me so, so, so dr sam what's the risks and my voice came out quite squeaky and quite <laughs> quiet because the nerves and the <laughs> you know but a few words in, I, I kind of got going and then I managed to keep my balance and mm. not speed up too much because normally I would speak quite quickly in such circumstances. But I did only really get like one little mm. nugget in. That's really common. And you're making me think, <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, I was once on Big Brother's Little Brother or oh, Big Brother's Little Brother's bit on Gosh, the side. I'm, this is like peeling the onion here. Yeah. And I was on a panel with Dean Piper, the showbiz journalist. Yes. I've only just remembered that, but he was there. And Emma Willis. Okay, yeah. Now they know each other. Oh. So during the dress rehearsal, we ch and, I st and I stand there like... <laughs> Bunny in the headlights a tiny bit, yes. And just before we went live, the producer came over to me and said, they know each other. If you don't speak up, you're not going to say anything anyways. and you're going to like an <gasps> idiot. <laughs> Not to make an so, already slightly stressful situation. So yeah, so then I started butting in. It felt really rude because like they are friends and they've got this normal rapport. But it, it's a, I'm sure, live TV isn't, it's not just about live TV. It could be about doing a presentation at work or it could be about anything where you're sure. under high stress. It's about showing up and uh, having having the energy to give your best version of yourself. Yes. You also have a deeper voice than me. I mean, I, I really need to work on my voice with gravity <laughs> it, uh, because yeah. otherwise you know on, t on tv you do actually really you need to own your expertise um and voice is so important mm. in that but i think anywhere i think it's a no, skill no, sure, sure, sure. anywhere whether you're speaking publicly or to a small group of people i think there is a real magic in seeing somebody who can really hold a room that's why like if you watch someone Amazing. like obama speak you're like doesn't matter doesn't matter where he is he's gonna People are going to pay attention. Um, I asked you to tell me about your greatest success and you mm. are really proud of your brand. So I want to ask you about that because first of all, starting a brand in an already really busy beauty marketplace, that to me, I was surprised that wasn't your biggest risk. Having a brand, Dr. Sam's, that provides skincare solutions. You've just launched uh, Retinol pro-nightly. Was that something that you had to go back and forth on about whether that was the right thing to do? Yes, I know I've got a voice in this industry, but is this industry ready for my products? I mean, I think I said to you my biggest regret was not doing it earlier. And mm. I think the whole journey to doing it and actually taking action was, you know, the brand's been around for four and a bit years now. And I suppose I started working on it concretely a year before that, so five and a half years for that. But before that, I'd been talking to other entities about doing a brand for an, probably an additional four or five years. And it started with Boots, actually. I was approached um, by two consultants who'd worked previously with Boots at a very senior level. They thought I'd be a great figurehead for a brand. Had I any ideas? And actually, I had lots of ideas. And in fact, the ideas are really not that dissimilar to what I ended up going on to do with Dr. Sam's. But 
Um, we spent, I'd say, the best part of a year in conversation with them. And, you know, it's a huge organization. Mm. Reminds me a bit of the NHS, actually. Um, and, you know, you you build relationships with people and then they move and you're building new relationships. And you have to convince lots of stakeholders as to why a brand, you know, with your name on it would be a good idea. Um, and I probably just didn't have quite enough clout then to really drive it home. Mm. I don't, it's obviously a blessing because I wouldn't have had anything like the control I've had. But I think it started the seeds of doing it, but it also made me think I needed something else, somebody else, some other supportive mm. element because I didn't have a business background. And I guess I went around the houses a bit. I, you know, I talked to other people because there was interest. I was then approached by a high net worth individual who had developed brands before about doing it. Um, but they didn't like the idea of doing an e-commerce brand which to me was the way to deliver something really special, but that was affordable because I really had this notion of wanting the brand to be the diffusion line to the clinic. So the clinic is sort of my high-end offering. It's bespoke, it's, you know, face-to-face, -face, it's luxurious in terms of the time and mm -hmm. the, you know, the support that people get. But I wanted the, the brand to be the next best thing and to use mm. technology to create an almost similar experience in terms of our routine finder, helping you find the right way to use the system. There's clear parallels in how I practice and how the brand is built and patients can see both. They, you know, they, it feels familiar when they do the mm. routine finder and get their little plan at the end of it. Um, so, you know, the video content helps you make sure you use the products in exactly the right way. So there's no guesswork. Mm. So it's all very complete. Um, but that wasn't what he knew. So in the end it didn't go ahead. Um, my partner at the time was was an entrepreneur and was just like, you need to just start. <laughs> and I was like, but can you really just start? You know? Um, so I, I I then thought, okay, fine, I'll go and meet some independent chemists. I'll try and understand a bit more about what this would look like doing it by myself. And I suppose at the end of the day, even though I had a range of products in mind, I thought, if I did nothing else but make cleanser, because cleansers I like kept disappearing from the market, mm. I would be doing the world a service, <laughs> myself and many beauty editors um, included. So at the end of the day, I finally met the chemist and manufacturer who was just the perfect partner in terms of the vision and how they saw everything coming together and actually just really believing me at a critical point. And they made the process of developing those first products so easy and I didn't have to invest. They were happy to commit the R&D just with the promise of the first purchase order. And that's a very unusual circumstance to be in. So it meant my risk was actually incredibly low. Of course, there's the risk to my name and putting myself out there. But I don't think I really worried about that at all. I just thought I know products so well. I've worked with so many brands, done so much testing and, you know, beauty awards. Um, you know, pharmacology was part of my degree at Cambridge. I've always been fascinated by the chemistry and formulations and got really excited about making products. So, you know, of course there was things like branding and building the site and mm -hmm. all that stuff to do. But I don't know. I think once I found the right chemist and they produced formulas really quite quickly that were close to what I was looking to, you know, to create. Um, I then just got caught up in the process and didn't worry about things too much. For anyone who wasn't sure, you just mentioned R&D, that's research and development. Um, if you had to boil down what you've learned from that experience <laughs> for someone who's listening, who yes. may not be, so there may not be a parallel, they may not be wanting to launch their own beauty brand, but they may be listening to this thinking, I really identify with Sam about the little voice in her head and I all of this, but I also want to 
launch a product or do a thing or make a decision, how would you boil down the sort of fundamentals of what you learned into advice that you would share with someone that you think would steer them well? So the first thing is you must have product market fit. You know, to me, there was no point in creating something that was already out there. Um, It had to be different. It had to be really, really in tune with what the customer need was. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, forget marketing is kind of a concept to begin with. And I think that's where so many brands go wrong. You need to really understand the consumer need and how you're going to address it in a way that is better um, than, than other competitor brands. That's the first thing. Um, the next thing is to do everything as leanly as you can until you've tested your hypothesis. So just bootstrap it to the absolute utmost so that you're, you know, you're not compromising yourself. You're not putting yourself in danger. Um, you know, that's probably where my risk averse thing Mm came in at the beginning. I was very, very careful. I mean, everything operated from the living room until it didn't. Um, And then surround yourself with smart people who've walked that path before. So other entrepreneurs, so generous on the journey of giving advice, guidance, picking up the phone to relative strangers and connecting you with people. Um, It gives me goosebumps just thinking back to how many nice supportive kind people who kind of paid it forward without any expectation Mm. at all and I'm very lucky I was able to tap into those networks I suppose um but I think those three things if you do those three things it will put you in a position of strength I guess how important have mentors been and how how did you find yours I mean, a lot of it was kind of serendipity. I think being out there and meeting people is actually a really important part of the job. And some days, you know, when I'm bogged down in the day-to-day of stuff, and I don't really feel like going out for a drink with, you know, somebody who maybe is thinking... Emma of, from such and such. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or like, you know, investors that are interested mm-hmm. in, your, in, your, in your brand who maybe, you know, have connections and, you know, they've seen it all before, right? Um, and you just have to make yourself go. And invariably... It's that step back that allows you to look down on your business rather than being in the weeds of it. Mm. But I think it's actually really, really important. Um, So for me, I mean, I joined an entrepreneurs group a couple of years ago. It was called The Supper Club. It's now called Helm. So um, that's been super helpful. And then I suppose because in beauty, founders meet each other all the time. So I've been quite lucky at events and things to, you know, make, Mm. make friends who are also in a similar boat um what do you, else do you pay it forward do you mentor now not yet I haven't I haven't, still haven't quite got the bandwidth but I'm going back to my um to my grammar school in the near future and I'd quite like to get involved with ideally girls who are my age who um you know if, if with a bit more support because they you know are bright and have the academic prowess but just that belief in themselves the things that the tools that I have and that you know you have now that we we use to uh, fake confidence until it actually starts to feel mm-hmm. natural like imagine if we had a class a week you know devoted to, to developing those tools at that early age you know like how you know how much easier could things have been how much better in some ways could things have been um to know that the voice in your head is not the real you mm. and that you can you know lock it in a room and get it to silence every so while you know you can get um, it to pipe down as yeah. you carry on with what you're doing exactly um 
You have said that a weakness that you consciously work on is the sense of overwhelm that you can feel. Mm. Is that would you say that is a daily effort, or would you say it is something that shows up at a time of stress, and that's how you know that maybe it's time to put the phone on silent and stare at the wall for a couple of hours? That's just my coping technique. Um, I think. I have a, a very sensitive nervous system, right? So it can go either way. I can have days where everything's just fallen into place. I've started my day in the right way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple of good things happen and I get real momentum. I kind of can literally feel it coursing through me. But at the same token, it can go in the other direction too. So it's really just, I suppose, knowing that. I mean, I don't drink caffeine anymore for that reason because I it just... It could tip me either way, but, um, you know, it makes me feel really good when God, I'm in a positive. Caffeine's my drug, drug of choice. Really? Oh, no, I, I'm just dangerous. I mean, decaf coffee can sometimes even be quite a dangerous thing to consume. Yeah, no, that's how sensitive, sensitive to I am. So, um, so I have to be really careful. But, yeah, I think just know thyself, right? I mean, I'm definitely what I would consider a highly sensitive person based on the reading around the topic. Mm-hmm. Noises, smells, uh, everything. Um, bright lights these days yeah. <laughs> as I sit here <laughs> in your very brightly lit room. Under the death star, um, yeah. But yeah, I, um, yeah, it's just knowing yourself, isn't it? And as I, say, I definitely didn't know myself very well for many decades, in fact. I think really the last couple of years is, is, you know, as I've gone on the journey with the brands and I've had to learn new skills to cope with the lifestyle. Um, but, you know, I've also met people along the way that I think are, are really true friends. Like I've made friends really quickly in the last few years because I think you know your tribe better. Do, I, I agree with you. I think that so interesting that you said that you didn't really know yourself before. Would you say that it was you were running on fear hormones before oh i mean i still would tend to my Mm. amygdala must be the size of watermelon it's definitely not an almond right (laughs) you know metaphorically speaking and so do you um in in getting to know yourself Mm. what do you think is the biggest piece of work that you've had to do in order to be able to say i know myself much better than i did before and not only that but in knowing myself i am happier and the people I am able to surround myself with are far more uh, like me and are people that I want to be around? I mean, I think I've definitely had periods in my life where I've surrounded myself with friends who've activated my I'm not good enough thing, whether it's social status or, you know, boyfriends, like leveling up, like setting yourself really Mm. challenging goals because that's kind of what I've got used to doing. Um, maybe moving in circles that might on the outside look quite shiny, but maybe Mm. in reality don't make me feel super comfortable. So I think stopping forcing myself into situations like that now and just saying no, um, unless it suits me and I'm in the mood for it or whatever. Mm. Um, Yeah, those. I mean, certainly I'd say my personal relationships, it's an area where I've definitely gotten better at recognizing bad choices or choices Mm. that have not been the best for me probably is a better way of looking at it. What were you at school? Were you part of the cool crowd or were you a loner? I transitioned. I was probably a bit dorky until I became sporty and uh, I started doing my hair like Kylie and then I became a bit cooler. Which era Kylie? Oh, you know, Moose and Diffuser. Okay. <laughs> Locomotion. Oh, it's early Kylie. <laughs> Better than the, well, I mean, yes. <laughs> so you went from uncool to cool. 
Because I think that... I mean, not inside, of course. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, ex, you know, I dated the rugby captain, you know, kind of... But the sport stopped me being dorky, you know, from the academic mm. side of things. You know. I think something happens in school and it's why there are so many films and TV shows that are set in high schools made by people who have long left high school. Because I think there's a part of all of us. It's still there. Yeah, emotionally mm. and wants to redo or right the wrongs or wish that it had been an easier time. And I think like you, I, as an adult, thought if I'm with the shiny people, the shiny popular people then I will become shiny and popular and I'll be happy. And you can spend a long time trying to do that. Yes. And before you realize, this is a waste of my time. <laughs> it's exhausting. And act, it doesn't and it, make you happy because you don't actually respect them for the right reasons in mm -hmm. the first place. So I think, I mean, it's interesting that I think there's something about our brain and still in transition in our teenage years mm -hmm. that makes us want to be part of the, the crowd. Yeah. It's, des it's actually important from a survival point of view as an ape that you you develop those tendencies mm -hmm. so it's 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 almost more the anomaly if you are the outsider and maybe that's not the best thing for you psychologically in terms of yeah but um in terms of values i think actually articulating what your values are and really kind of calling them out and writing them down somewhere for those days where you're struggling i found that to be it's such a simple thing mm. but it's actually quite powerful and it really does help you make decisions that you're otherwise in turmoil about sometimes mm. writing down what well, uh, forgive me for being ignorant but what might that look like is it just a, like a list of five values <sighs> yeah like what what path do you want to tread? Like, you know, when I don't know, when you lose your temper over something really trivial or I don't know, you have a run in with your Uber driver who's, you know, gone the wrong way or... You're not it, outside! Something like that, yeah. you know? Um, you're not where I ordered you. Um, mm. You know, stuff like that. It's just like, that's... At the end of the day, those small... That's a small example, but... Um, you know, being decent to people, having treating others the way you want to be treated yourself is such a simple maxim, but it is mm. so important. And it's quite easy when you become busy and, you know, semi-important to maybe think that it's okay not to behave like that. But actually that stuff doesn't sit well with me. I remember being, I think in school and also in um, workplaces, it almost seeming as though the higher up the hierarchy you got, the more allowed it was to punch down. And so it felt like in addition to a new job title and maybe a bit more salary every month, you also earned the right to not treat the people below you well. Mm. And not a fan of that. No. It's like the boyfriend with the waiter test, right? Like people who are not. Have you ever been on a date and a boyfriend is, or a potential love interest has spoken to the waiter poorly and have you then gone, bye? <laughs> Um, yes, I think so. But I think he'd also been incorrect with me. And I think I might have left at the first course. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it was, it would have been amazing, but I'd also broken, not to be fancy, my Manolo heel on the way to the date. So I had to sort of limp out. <laughs> so I wasn't as statuesquely catwalky as I walked out as I would have been had the Manolo not Did you do the Romeo and Michelle thing where you were like, I'm sorry, I have to leave my shoes filling up with blood. <laughs> No, I didn't. That's quite no. funny. No, you should have. I forgot that you had a, a shoe fascination. Mm. Yes. Is that, I'm surprised that wasn't your weakness. It's not ongoing at the moment. No, I've, I'm, I'm in a resting phase. <laughs> You're in a resting phase. <laughs> While you get a, sh a shoe closet I built. don't love shoes right now. 
I think that's the problem. My 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 first word was shoe, so it's not mm. just a broad fashion thing. It's a very specific shoe mm. thing. Um, but yeah, the shoe the shoe silhouette of the moment does not appeal. No, I'm just in boots and flats the whole time, and I'm just it's I'm, I've reached that age. It's comfort over style. Well, I will be until the right shoe comes back. Yeah. Oh, and then you'll be, and then I'll be back in you know, like Cinderella, Aquasaurus. <laughs> um, right before we, uh, you're right. I should have finished that as my weakness. Yes. Yes, as opposed to emotional overwhelm. My mother would definitely have chosen that as my weakness. <laughs> she had this fear of me kind of going to bankruptcy court with this sort of Louis Vuitton trunk with shoes trailing out of it as I have to give up my home or something. I don't know. She's very risk averse, my mum. Yeah, it sounds it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to close off, let's talk oh, about, um, this is the most exposing question. Oh, Talk oh, to me about a time when you were wrong and, you, and your response has been well daily. There's so many times, you know, but um, well, I haven't probably given you a very insightful wrong then, have I? I mean, you've said... Is it like, it's a thing I think we didn't do very well last year as a brand, but it's probably not a terribly personal wrong. No. And I think well, you, one of the things you said was try stuff, fail fast and move on. So it's almost yeah. as if being wrong in your eyes, is a way to learn. Mm. I think you have to have a learning mindset, you know, mm. particularly as e-commerce has gotten harder in the last 12 months. Um, but, you know, I have smart people around me who are filled with ideas, so that's not a problem. Mm. But um, I think I drove the idea of doing a sort of a pop-up event thing. Like, I was really keen on it. Mm. And I think we just didn't... I think, you know, there are times when my lack of structured business... I've, I've got really good instincts, I would say, because we've gotten pretty far. And we've only really just been hiring more senior people into the team mm. in the last sort of 12 months or so. But, you know, there comes a point in time where you actually do just need people who have done loads of stuff and work for other people and, mm. you know, have the science of their craft rather than just a sort of you know, agile monkey-esque kind of instinct. Um, so yeah, but, you know, I, I now know a lot more about doing eventing, which mm. I will carry into the next event. So hard question then. Mm. When is there a time that you've been wrong that is not related to your brand or to work? <laughs> um, I think... I think hiring has had its challenges. That's related to work and that's related to your brand. But I think that's that... It's... I don't know, relationships with people. I mean, I think it's those instances that mm. are challenging. And some of the most challenging ones have been in work, people I've been close to. So, yeah. Would you advise then don't mix business and pleasure? Um, Is that something you're slowly learning? <laughs> Possibly. It's possibly easier. It's definitely tidier. Um, I think it's fine if it starts in business and then veers into friendship. That is mm -hmm. definitely easier to navigate. There are clearly clearer rules around that. Um, but I, d I don't think it's that's not something I feel I've been wrong about. Um, I'm trying to think what the best example is. I think I probably made the worst decisions in personal relationships. I think sometimes craving excitement and and, you know, taking risks Mm -hmm. has led to a bit of a kamikaze approach to my own heart in a way. Mm -hmm. So I think that being wrong in not looking far enough ahead and actually not thinking about is, you know, rather than just thinking about the immediate excitement of meeting mm -hmm. somebody new and, you know, what they do to your nervous system, I suppose, in a really basic way, but actually thinking about what a relationship should look like. Mm -hmm. That's taken me a long time to mature into. Are you someone who's slightly addicted to that first flush of love? Definitely, definitely a bit of a love addict. 
so do you have a uh you sort of get to six months you're like bored now and it's not it doesn't mean six months is quite long (laughs) (laughs) because i think that 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 exciting bit is terribly exciting and as as we've discussed as someone who has a nervous system that is highly tuned shall we say um that i can imagine would be the place where you would like my kryptonite yeah i even say yeah but you know it also means lots of amazing experiences and again i don't even think about relationships that didn't work out or maybe mm. ended a bit messily as things i regret but I have been really slow to learn. <laughs> so I've really taken a break, actually, the last couple of years to try to, to make better decisions or to understand what it would take, you know, a relationship to look like to actually make me happy in a more wholesome way, a bit like I've been evaluating personal friendships. So I think I'm quite excited having done the work on myself to see how different things might look. Mm. And I kind of won't know if the work's worked until... I can Until, be happy in a different type of relationship. Yeah. So I'll keep that's, you posted. That's an exciting juncture on which to leave you. Because, <laughs> because you've, you, as you say, you, you've done the work, you've taken time out to get to know yourself. And previously, whereby, to quote you, you might have had a bit of a kamikaze approach to your heart. Seems like that work is going to filter out into finding someone who's going to take a bit more care of it. Let's hope so. No, so. I'm optimistic about that too, actually. Um, yeah. Well, the last question is, uh, what are you hopeful about? <laughs> so are you hopeful about love in your future? I think so. Yeah. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this space. You can come back and tell us about your incredible uh, new relationship. Mm, and uh, you can become a relationship guru next. Oh, good God. <laughs> Um, Dr. Sam Bunting, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show. And why not tell a friend about the podcast? If you want to watch what happens behind the scenes, then head over to my Instagram where I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks, obstacles, challenges, or curveballs that you've faced and overcome, then tell me on thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. And it may feature in one of the midweek shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one. 